1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Hi everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network's Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I recently became a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Dr. Maxwell Foran about his book, The Subjugation of Canadian Wildlife, Failures of Principle and Policy. His book was published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2018 as part of the Press's Rural Wildland and Resource Studies series. Uh, Dr. Foran is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Communication, Media and Film at the University of Calgary. Welcome to the podcast, Max.
0: Thanks, Carl. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, great. Uh, So could you please tell us a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, what topics you work on, or or, or anything else you think the listeners might want to know about you?
0: There's not a great deal to tell, Carl. (laughs) I was born and raised in Australia. I came to Canada in 1963 to marry a tall Canadian, beautiful Canadian lady who was very interested in wildlife, and we were married in 63, and uh, we lived in uh, uh, an acreage at Prittis near, near Calgary. I spent most of my career in public education, both as a teacher and an administrator, and the last 15 or 16 years teaching at the University of Calgary. Okay.
1: Um, well, listen, before I ask you any other questions, uh, one thing I'd like to do is just thank you for writing, uh, an animal studies book about wild animals because, um, there's, 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 you know, a growing animal studies literature, um, and a lot of it is about domesticated animals. Most of it is about domesticated animals, but, um, and so yeah, wild animal study, or sorry, uh, wild, uh, wild animals have been kind of a neglected topic within animal studies. And so I think books like yours are, uh, are really important. So yeah. So thanks for working on on a neglected topic. Yeah. So so why did you decide to write this book?
0: Uh, Well, I was sitting on the Chesterfield about 2009, and Heather was sitting opposite me, and she said suddenly, Max, I want you to write a book on wildlife. And I remember saying, what? It's not my field. And then she said to me, I can't write it, no one else can, except you. And I want you to write it, and you know what we believe, and I want you to do it for me. And I said, done, mate, done. And so I began it in 2013. This year she was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. I finished the first draft in 2016. Uh, and the second draft, the end of 2016, by which time Heather was very, very sick, and I got news that was going ahead from McGill-Queens in the spring of 2017. I told Heather, I think she got it, I think she got it, and she smiled, and uh, it was published a year later, and she died in May 2017, and it was published in... June 2018, and I wrote it for her. Hmm.
1: So this is a very personal personal work, I guess, for you. Um, yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so so I guess let's get into the, the, the content of the book. Um, so m- much of your book is, in one way or another, about the belief system that underpins wildlife management practices in Canada. Um, Your book argues that management practices under this belief system subjugate subjugate or dominate wild animals, and that this subjugation in turn threatens environmental values like habitat and biodiversity. Um, So I'm wondering, uh, before we talk about anything else, can you please describe the belief system that that underpins wildlife management in Canada?
0: I I think uh, to introduce this, (laughs) I, I, I never argued in the book that wildlife professionals and management professionals were not doing their job properly, professionally, adequately, and conscientiously. What I did contest was a belief system that underpinned their actions was flawed in that it assumes it assumes the instrumentality of all animals. It assumes the thingness of animals. It assumes they lack conscious states. And if you go along with those beliefs, the next, the next obvious con- conclusion is that these animals have no moral standing, no sense of who they are, and no sense of of ethical worth, and therefore uh, can be exploited uh, by humans uh, morally and ethically, except all this instrumental position argues that all animals can expect from us is a reasonable level of kind treatment and when necessary a quick and painless death. Uh, Even animal charities cannot get a charitable number unless they can demonstrate that the charity will benefit humanity. In other words, a wild animal's existence has all to do with humanity and not with itself and I say that's wrong. Mm
1: Yeah. Okay. No. Th- thanks for making that distinction. Um. Uh. It, it seems important that you you're you want to blame the belief system, but not blame the wildlife managers. Could you speak up a Oh, sure. Uh. Yeah. I, it just struck me that. Um. Uh. Yeah. You're you're noting that. Um. You're you're you're. I mean, you're. You're being critical in the book, but what you're really critical of is the belief system, and not so much the managers who are working within the belief system. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm wondering, do you, do you think that the same – because your, your book is about um, wildlife management in Canada specifically. Um, but, I mean, the beliefs of Canadians are not completely idiosyncratic. I, I'm wondering if you think that the same belief system underpins wildlife management uh, in, in a lot well, of other countries too.
0: Without doubt. I suppose it might be, um, you might have more sensitive wildlife policies in countries where wildlife are not an issue anymore when they've ex- extirpated them all uh and certainly in some african countries where wildlife is linked directly to tourism there's some sort of conscious need to do something but generally particularly in first world countries and particularly in canada where wildlife abundance is 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 quite rich and this 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 belief prevails but i think the belief about animals is held by that's Pretty straight standard Christian Christian tradition, you know that. Christianity has a a jaundiced view of God's concern for its wild creatures.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I I think that that's that's a topic that I I'm in, I'm interested in myself. Um, the relationship between Christianity specifically and um, beliefs we have about about wild animals. Um, I mean, uh, a lot of people aren't. That religious anymore. Um, I, no, I know that no, there are, no. but, but but it seems like that we've inherited a
0: yeah. But you can contend even without being religious. The argument is that because what animals wildlife cannot communicate with you and me in languages that we can understand, we therefore can adopt the parsimony principle quite 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 freely, and not do anything. In other words, because we don't know means it doesn't matter and as uh, nagel said in his article what it's like to be a bat that's patently what they what call it? the lowest level of cognitive dissonance or something like that and that's that's a mistake we make you know that's classic behaviorism logical positivism you know that better than i do <laughs>
1: All right. Well, um, so quite a lot of the book tries to show that valuing wildlife in an anthropocentric manner also threatens wildlife, that it ends up undermining conservation efforts. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you can say a bit about why valuing wildlife anthropocentrically leads to the rationalization of harmful policies. And, uh, and if you could give some examples too, that
0: would be well, great. The fundamental rationalization is that no wildlife policy can exist without a human component. That's that's the first thing. Every wildlife policy has to consider the human dimension, and that in enough is enough to make it anthropogenic. But I can give you you know several examples. Uh, uh, the Species at Risk Act uh, will not list the polar bear as threatened or endangered because if it did, then all hunting would be prohibited. That's not on. Similarly for the wolverine. The wolverine also is not listed when according to its number specifics, maybe it should be. And then there are the uh, recent changes in the Fisheries Act, which defined critical habitat, changed the definition of critical habitat from a habitat, habitat suitable for all fish to fish that only have commercial value. And then you have particularly, particularly edible fish like the bluefin tuna and the poor beagle shark, which are endangered, but which are not listed under the Species at Risk Act because the fisheries, fisheries people, Federal Fisheries Agency says we can handle this. We'll run this uh, in order to preserve our fisheries in other words uh, a species at Rick's Act which exists over and above all cabinet ministries apparently doesn't and so what you see is a a, 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 a lot of examples where human interest comes first protected areas protected areas same way it, it's all the same the human dimension is there it is impossible under the belief system to consider wildlife as autonomous communities, impossible.
1: All right. Well, um, I, I've got a bunch of questions here that are um, basically related to the last one. So the, this belief system has like lots of different features. And maybe we can get into some of the specific features of, of the belief system. So uh, part of the belief system, or actually maybe the biggest part, I don't know, is that it sees wild animals as resources. Um, and uh, so, I mean, uh, we can think of other resources too, you know, coal, uh, uh, oil, uh, uh, natural gas, etc. cetera. Um, so, uh, I, I, yeah, I was hoping you could explain what it means to treat wild animals yeah. as resources in, and in, say you a might what done,
0: You a might have noticed out. how I was laughing when you mentioned a resource. That's so stupid. I mean, a, a resource means able to be used. You resort to something, therefore you use it. And so you're labeling wildlife as a resource now first of all if indeed it is a resource then it must compete with other resources for budgeting and priority and compared to mining agriculture lumber wildlife are way way down on the list of resource priorities and therefore gets a minimal amount of funding. That's the first point. The second point is, to equate an aggregate of living um, living beings with truck rolls of coal, it's <laughs> pretty sad to me. Uh, wildlife are not a resource. They're not ours to be used. But if we must, if we must, to group them in in a category as a federal category or a provincial category maybe a trust rather than resource because a trust the trust demands attention a trust demands close observation uh, whereas a resource just means money 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 and the core wildlife research is the height the height in my opinion of human arrogance (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, yeah, I take it that uh, I mean one of the issues here with labeling wildlife or resources that um, compared to other resources, I mean, you you kind of said this already, but compared to some of the other resources that uh, the Canadian, Canadian government is concerned with, it's not wildlife is not, in at least in a lot of cases, not a very lucrative resource um, relative to other ones, and so when you have conflicts between which resources you want to prioritize. And, and particularly, yeah, so like, exactly, sometimes, Kyle, sometimes, exactly. Okay,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah, and so, um, yeah, I mean, if, if it's a choice between habitat and energy development or something like that, often, yeah. Okay. Um, well, look, so another part of the belief system is that it sees wild animals as a bunch of different species rather than as individuals. Um, I was hoping you could explain this idea and um, explain why seeing wild animals as yeah as species instead of as individuals is is a problem.
0: Well the trouble with calling I mean we, we generalize as humans, we talk about we talk about Canadians and Americans or groups that we have, but we, we, we do identify people by groups. Yeah, yeah. But we acknowledge that within those groups the individual is significant. All individuals can't. When you label wildlife uh, into, when you you classify wildlife in in species-specific terms, what you are doing is removing them completely from any relationship with us because they only exist as a collective. A deer, a deer, an individual doe or fawn, it doesn't count. It's just an individual deer. And the third point is you manage according to this collective and you use a language, a discourse that diminishes them further. Culling, harvesting, population management, game management. These, these are derogatory. And by continuing to label animals as spe- species-specific terms, you are neutralizing them. No, not neutral. Sorry, bad word. You are neutering them. This is the us. And they don't count. And the language of discourse just backs it up. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, does okay, answer, thanks. Does
0: that answer your question?
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and I, I take it that um, uh, if, if the belief system were to... Um, Honor wild animals as individuals more. I mean, one of the implications that you think this would have is that is that it would lead us in the direction of compassionate conservation. Um, so we'd, we'd be using tech, conservation techniques that um, do function to pursue the same goals as um, as conservation tends to to some extent, but um, but which are less harmful to animals. So, for example, instead of hunting in order, instead of using hunting to control the size of a wild animal population, we might be inclined to use um, a contraceptive to control the size of that population because something like a contraceptive is not going to be killing animals, right? It's a, it's a desirable alternative, but it's only going to be viewed as desirable once we acknowledge that individual animals matter, that that their um, their lives matter, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, a third part of the belief system is that it holds a Fixed in time conception of ecological integrity. Um, can can you describe the fixed in time conception and and what it has to do with anthropocentrism?
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, the uh, the Canadian historical environmentalist said. Stephen Blocking said that if you ask any scientist or biologist for definition of ecological interi- integrity, you get a different answer every one of them. My answer is ecological integrity, the term is no more than a social construct. There is no such thing as looking at ecological integrity. It's always in a state of flux. And so because we believe that we stand outside nature and and we are not really part of ecological integrity, we see our role is in maintaining it and trying to keep ecological balance in proper perspective. But that's ridiculous because there is no static nature of ecological integrity. There cannot be. It's an ongoing, never-ending process. But we don't do that. We set a state that we think, and what's the biodiversity strategy say? It says something typical to what it would be in nature. Oh, come on. That's meaningless. And then strives to manage according to that definition. And but this what this means is by punishing offenders. Too many deer, wild horses in Alberta trampling down the environment, get rid of them. Don't worry about the cattle are doing the same thing. Uh, it's, it's, a, an, an ex- it's an opportunity to do what you want under what a pseudo-scientific rationale, (laughs) and it doesn't work. And uh, I I can see why you do it, because you've got no choice. What else are we gonna do? But for crying out loud, if you're gonna do it, try to integrate the components into your management styles as best you can, and taking out offenders (laughs) is not the best way. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, I, 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 think so. I mean, but, but, yeah, part of what I'm, I'm interested in is, um, uh, well, what do you mean then? What yeah. do you mean by that? Well, well I, I guess when I was reading, um, uh, the book and and what you had to say about this, um, it seemed to me that there, there was a pretty close relationship between this fixed in time conception and, um, our cultural values, hist- uh, our, our, uh, uh, the way we value history, it's like we're kind of like we're treating treating nature as like a museum or something like that. Um, uh, it's full of artifacts that remind us of our past, and we want those artifacts to stay there <laughs> because we care about our past. Um, is, is that is that right?
0: Yeah, this is the way it should look, nice and green and wetlands, and and let's keep it that way, but keep it that way by including us by including us in it, by keeping ourselves aside from us, by managing ourselves. And you can't manage a system, ecological integrity, when you're part of the whole darn system yourself. <laughs> so how can you stand outside and manage it? Uh, so all you can do is, is do what you're doing, but don't go, don't go being uh, uh, conclusive and deterministic about it. You just try to include the best you can by leaving things alone as much as you can and interfering minimally. But we don't do this. We don't do this because there's so many pressures on us, the decision-makers, that, I mean, the, the cormorants on Middle Island, I mean, uh, they got a whole fixed-in-time conception about what, Everything looked like before the cormorants. Well, everything didn't look that great before the cormorants, but uh, yeah, yeah, they were to the blame for, for destroying it. And so you, you like too many deer, uh, Saskatchewan killed 70,000 coyotes, didn't need it. But for, for no reason, uh, but to maintain the balance. Whose balance? human balance i understand that i'm simply saying that as long as you continue to think in those terms while life will be continually prejudiced simple as that i gonna be a rocket scientist okay
1: yeah thanks now um i guess this is my uh maybe my last question that's about the the details of the of the belief system arts related to that but um so throughout the book, you're you're pretty critical of something called adaptive management, and uh, I was hoping you could explain. That's a that's a technical term. I was hoping you could explain what adaptive management is, but also why it's related to anthropo- the anthropocentric
0: belief system. Well, uh, first of all, let me look at the the definition. Uh, uh, the precautionary principle adopted by Coase. Now, Coase, is the – that's the uh, that's the group that advises the listing of animals uh, to the to the federal government uh, the committee on the in status of endangered wildlife in Canada encoded in COSWIC is the statement is the precautionary principle no proactive action should be taken with any wildlife until the results are scientifically certain as possible now adaptive management says exactly the opposite exact adaptive management refers to thinking on the job realizing that's uh, realizing that outcomes are impossible to determine accurately so you change on the go you experiment and see what things work, and try to refine your management techniques by trying out new things. Okay, that goes against the precautionary principle, but it also goes further than that, because what it really means is a car block license to do what you want. Uh, when the wolves were cold in BC, they're shooting them from helicopters because eating caribou, and the lead one of the lead negotiators said in public we're trying to figure out if this thing works Uh, and we're using adaptive management answers to uh, cull moose in parks on the grounds that uh, we want to see what happens if we cull enough moose in this national park maybe we haven't got a we maybe we haven't got to do some restorative actions in other words, it's, it's a license to do carte and it pursued rigorously, it would have a place. But it's come to mean pretty well anything you want, depending on what jurisdiction. But it simply means do what you want. And as a result, lethal actions are taken. Which violate the precautionary principle, and I I, I, I go up no further than that. You've got a, 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 an agency of government which is committed to a precautionary principle. I think it's outlined in the biodiversity strategy too. I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my far on it. And you've got a, a policy which runs counter to those two things, and it it, it just doesn't make sense. It's convenient makes things easier Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah um i I, yeah okay so that that, that's interesting um so there's nothing in your view nothing wrong with adaptive management in and of itself if it were sort of used
0: oh no there's a good thing there's a good thing If, if you follow the six steps and if you follow the routines you have to follow in order to get the results yes but no but that's i'm not talking about that i'm talking about it's rampant prostitution and 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 uh uh which amounts to do what you want, and it's justification to do what you want. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it works, oh, that's good. So the casualties, the collateral damage, is accepted, and that goes against the precautionary principle. Encoded in Cozwick.
1: Okay. Yeah. I don't get it. <clears throat> All right. Um, well, let's 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 move on. Um, so in your chapter on uh, threats to habitat, you have a section discussing agriculture and the various ways in which growing crops, especially genetically modified crops, uh, threaten wild animals' habitat. And um, I, 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 I enjoyed reading the chapter, but uh, I, I thought this would be an opportunity to press you a little bit. So you, um, um, one, one thing you don't discuss is um, the relationship between um, uh, animal agriculture and the amount of crops that we, that we need to grow. Um, so as, as some of our listeners uh, are probably aware, um, a lot of the crops that are grown in, in Canada and the United States and elsewhere are, are just grown as, as feed crops. They're used to just feed livestock. And the proportion of feed crops to non-feed crops is pretty high. There's, we, we, we use most of the crops that we grow are actually just grown as uh, feed crops for, for feeding livestock. And um, I, I was I was wondering if you could if you could say a bit about this. In particular, I'm 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 wondering if you think that reducing the consumption of animal products is is really important for protecting habitats.
0: That's that's a fair question, Carl. I didn't I didn't focus on it as much. I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. Uh, the whole attitude towards food production uh, must change in order to maximize maximize the land that we have. I didn't deal with it because it brought the domesticated animals into play and uh, uh uh and I didn't want to do that Kyle I mean uh, uh my first draft of the book was much larger and I discussed things like industrial farming and discussed the sort of stuff you're talking about but uh but I realized I, I leaned it down but yes it is a it is a it is a big issue it is a big issue and uh and and as part of just a bigger idea, that what I think what threatens wildlife most of all is not conscious persecution of wild animals because of whatever rationale. It's the it's the uh, inadvertent danger caused by destruction of habitat, and habitat is what's is what. Is prejudicial to wildlife most of all, lack of habitat, and your point is part of uh, the, the big picture of as habitat dwindles, so will wildlife. Okay.
1: Um. So. So. Yeah. You. I. I guess you agree then that. Um. Th- this is an important part of of protecting habitat. Um, it's not all there is to protecting habitat, but one of the things we. Probably should be doing collectively. Could you, could, could you speak up, Carlo? Oh. I, I can't hear you. Uh, I,
0: I take. I've the, got these earphones even, on.
1: Even though you don't say it in the book, you 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 do think that we we all ought to be trying to reduce the amount of animal products that we eat. That um, this would this is the environmentally responsible thing to do. Okay, I, I, I was just I was just trying to trying to press you on. Uh, so I'm 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 vegan myself, and one of the things I like to talk about is just the consumption of animal products. And I, I was wondering how how far you would go in that direction, whether whether you think we really need to really be cutting back on animal products is this something that that's really really important
0: uh, yeah yeah and it's not just the animal products It's the, it's uh, i mean the dairy industry is a horrific industry in terms of what it puts through yes yes and there are alternatives out there kyle there are alternatives out there but cultural mindsets are hard to change and i do believe that that the we have a very expensive use of land and we haven't got that much of it. Terrible. I suppose even pastoral, pa- pastoral usage, does mitigate to a degree against browsing wildlife as well. So yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. I'm with you. Thanks. Good. I'm with you. <laughs>
1: um. All right. So uh, I'm curious. What what changes do you think need to be made? To the, to the belief system, the anthropocentric belief system for wild animals and their habitat to be adequately
0: protected? There's only one doable one because I, I don't believe the belief system will change. We will, we will privilege ourselves. That's in our nature as a species. In fact, I once, I once heard a definition of reason that said, acting in one's own interest. Have you, ever, have you ever read that one, Kyle? A definition of reason, acting in one's own interest. Um, no, I, no I'm, not, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, well, and, and and I don't think we are going to act against our interest to that degree to make a big belief change. But what we can do, and that's what you ask, I think we should be a little bit, we should be more willing to dele- to dedicate wa- larger tracts of land for wildlife exclusively. No hunting, no trapping, no mining, no no human interference, nothing. I think the, the rewilding movement has some possibilities here, and I think it, it is possible to convince the body public that in our own interests – as your own interest, with all the problems facing us, it would behoove us to to set aside more land, more marine land for uh, undisputed un- use of wildlife. I think that's 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 doable, and I also think we could get stop using the word rights. I think it's a political, it's a, it's, a, it's a legal word, and now it's a politically laden word. And start to think of, I mean, we don't get upset with people we don't know. We just accept them. I don't know the guy down the road, but I respect his lot, right, long word, I respect his claim to 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 act out his own life in his own way. And I think I say about wildlife. I wasn't sentimental towards wildlife like Heather was. I wasn't at all. I feel an empathy towards them. I feel an empathy towards the thoughts of stuff they've got to deal with every day, like all of us. And I use my reason, my so-called human-defining, human-defining category or aspect, to reach that conclusion. And I call that rational empathy. And I see no reason why we cannot, most of us, not all of us, it's impossible, but most of us can't have a more rationally and empathetic attitude towards wildlife. I don't know you that well. In I don't know you at all. But I accept your right as an autonomous being that they don't need us. I respect your right to live your life as I do mine. And I think if we can cultivate that in the young, that's not all about us as humans, because that's self-destructive. It's all about us as inhabitants of a planet, an imperiled planet. And while I've done ask much from us, Kyle, they'd ask, ask very little from us. There are some incursions, yeah, and there will be, into our domains. But I see no reason why we can't develop a rational, empathetic position towards those that we don't know so well, but recognise that their right to exist on this planet is as good as ours. Hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. I um. Yeah. So you 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 have a. Uh, I mean, there was a you, there was a couple of 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 things you uh you said there, or a few things. Um. But I mean, so w- one of the things um was related to one of your chapters on um, protected areas in Canada. Um, and so we we do have, you know, as as you discuss in your book, we do have various areas such as um, uh, provincial parks uh, in Canada that are um, protected against certain uses by by businesses and um, like, uh, commercial interests. Um, but um, but one, one of the things you you you're, you talk about in the book is how they're less protected than you'd think, um, and you, you think they should be sort of more protected, I guess, right?
0: Yeah, no, no, I, I think it's the. It's the whole attitude that no matter what we at what we, everything has to contain a certain aspect of our control. Let it go. But, but I think we can do that. I mean, after all, well, creatures don't pay their taxes. And therefore, how can you be part of any political process, decision-making process, when the agents of that process don't pay their way? And there are some people who think like that. Uh, But I don't think that's, that attitude can be changed. Uh, And I think rather than letting, my point is not that there's already places where people's access is limited. But the notion, the existing and pervading notion that that existence must be provided, no matter how minimal. That's what I don't like. I mean, either open it up and say, yep, this is yours. And we don't touch it. But gee, that's hard to do. If oil's discovered there, or some minerals, some rich, other prospective bottom line money gainer, no way. And, And so in a way, my argument is, deterministic.
1: Well, all right. Um, uh, so uh, w- another thing that, that came out in, I guess, um, w- in what you just said, and it's related to one of my questions. Um, so you, yeah, you, you draw a contrast in the book between, um, the animal rights view and, um, other views that, uh, so, so views that prioritize respect for wild animals, freedom or, or wild animals autonomy. Um, and um, what you just said suggests you're, you're, yeah you think that respect for wild animal animals freedom is really important and that, go, that goes hand in hand with uh, your view that we should just set aside certain areas where we we really don't interfere with wild animals lives at all. We just leave them completely alone to do to do what they want. Um, but, but you, you you think that this is very different from, from the animal from an animal rights position. Um, could you say a bit more about this this contrast the difference between these views?
0: Thought I just did, but uh, you can't. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, now, what I will say that the animal rights movement it is directed primarily in that domestic animal regime, and the domestic animals are property. That's the that's the issue. Domestic animals are property, and the animal rights people, I think bucked up the wrong tree originally. I wouldn't have gone, I would not have predicated my movement on domestic animals because it's too much of a, it's, it's too difficult, it's too entwined in our, in, in, in human usage and it's too entwined with a nation of property. Uh, wildlife are no one's property and they autonomous, sovereign communities. And if you concentrate on the rights of sovereign uh, autonomous communities already sovereign autonomous. Then you've got a better chance of moving the, moving the discussion towards a, 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 a wider scope. And I stayed away from that, uh, Kyle, on purpose. I was staying away from domestic animals as much as possible, and I couldn't I couldn't deal with, as you said, at the animal rights position, without bringing domestic animals into it. And no, I wasn't going to do that. So hence, uh. And I still like my rational empathy better than animal rights. But yeah, was was my wife animal rights? Sure she was. And, uh, but I don't, I like the term less and less these days because of how we're throwing that word rights around and how it's become a politically laden statement, not just, not just legal connotation, but politically laden. So that's why I stayed away from animal rights.
1: Okay. Yeah, I see. Uh, yeah, I remember it, uh, there were certain points in the book when um, you pointed out how um, sometimes, um, I, I think, I, I can't remember the specific examples, but I think governments in particular would, in order to be dismissive of um, a group that was concerned with protecting animals, they would they would label it an animal, animal rights group, even though it really wasn't. Um, it's a pejorative. Yeah, you're true. That's another, yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's a pejorative. And it continues to be a pejorative and used very politically so animal rights wackos Uh, yeah (laughs) you could throw that one in my argument as well (laughs) and politicians represent a very narrow spectrum of humanity they've got vested interests the body public is far more accepting of wildlife than the politicians who have very narrow and very narrow agendas, and they're not going to waste their little time on the floor or little time interrupting caucus in order to talk about animals and their rights. Uh, and so under our parliamentary system, <laughs> I'm kind of dead in the water.
1: All right. Well, we've um, managed to go through the. The questions I had in mind, really uh, reasonably quickly. I'm I'm surprised we actually got through everything I kind of wanted to talk about. Yeah, far um, <laughs> away. Any more? <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess we'll just we'll just finish up here. Um, so uh, uh, thanks again for joining us. Um, and yeah, we've been talking about your 2018 book, "The Subjugation of Canadian Wildlife: Failures of Principle and Policy," uh, which was published by McGill Queen's University Press. I think the just the only other question I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects, and uh, if so, uh, what what are you working on? Sadly, as
0: an older man, I'm reverted to fiction.
1: Fiction. I write wonderful.
0: novels now. Yep, but I did write, I did write a novel, not published, that sits behind, that could sit beside Subjugation as a nice compliment, a fictional version of the arguments I'm trying to make in Subjugation. Uh, and uh, I I wrote it purposely to be a companion to *Subjugation*. <laughs> I like that. But uh, now I've got on to other other fictional projects, and of course I enjoy my place at Pritis. Heather and i it's, its a conservation easement now, which is a half a section, and you can't touch anything on it. So uh, I like to preside over my place at Pritis, and see the animals and muck around with fiction. At least academic writing, I knew a little bit what I was doing, but fiction you don't, so that's why it's fun.
1: Yeah, so you 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 said that you you've uh, got a book that's meant as a companion to to the book we're talking about. Um is, is it um is it just on your computer or, or has it been published?
0: No, it's got all my family got their own copy and read it and it's on my computer. Okay, okay. <laughs> all right. It'd be wonderful to <laughs> Are you it? Be, isn't it? I I well, You're not I, it. I I am a little I'm a little interested. Um what's what's the name of the book? Sites of Perdition. It's of Perdition. You want a copy? this email me and I'll send you one, mate. A philosopher like you would like this. Oh, that's wonderful. Um,
1: well, good luck with all of your fiction projects. That sounds like a refreshing uh, change, I think. Yeah,
0: thanks, Carl. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you for, welcome, th- th- thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah. Uh,